Super excited that you guys are joining us as we're wrapping up this uh, remarkable track through the book of Jonah. But first, let me give a shout out to all of the folk who are watching from our San Jose campus. Make some noise in San Jose. Praise God. And, and, a mini, and a shout out to those of you who are watching on the multiple social media platforms. By the way, if you're watching by way of Facebook, go ahead and release some emojis. Release some emojis. Release some love in the air. Praise God. Listen, wherever you're watching from and whenever you're watching, because not everybody's watching on a Sunday, I want you to know this is a God-appointed moment for you, and I just want to say a word of welcome to you. All right, can everybody shout this title? Can you simply say, the struggle is worth it? Shout it. The struggle is worth it. Shout it. All right, God, we pray that you would bless this, transform this teaching into a meaningful, practical transformative word for those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, guys, let's look at our text. It begins in in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what the writer says. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. So now, Lord, listen, just take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you? to be angry. And there ends the reading. If you've been following along with us as we have taught through the book of Jonah, you have discovered that we have highlighted two dominant themes. The first is a theme built around the fact that God loves us with a relentless love. As Jonah simply described him a few moments ago, the God that we know that Jonah knew is a God who is, is, is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and abounding in what the psalmist declares, steadfast, unrelenting love. Whether we are expressing the best of humanity or whether we're expressing in our living the worst of humanity, his love will not give up on us. And then the second major dominant theme we've talked about over the past couple of weeks that really came to a crescendo in chapter 3 is this notion of change. The good news is that unlikely change is possible for you and possible for me in partnership with God and with others. Not overnight, but over time. Shout good news. Good news. But today, here in chapter 4, beginning at the last verse in chapter 3, the next and perhaps the second most dominant theme of the entire book of Jonah is laid bare before us. It's captured in one word, struggle. The whole book of Jonah is about Jonah being locked into a colossal struggle with God. Now, here's my definition for struggle. Struggle is about wrestling and tussling with another in an attempt to persuade, win, or control a particular outcome. 
This is the challenge that we find with Jonah. From, from the opening pages of the book, God says, I want you to go and create an opportunity for the people of Nineveh to be redeemed. And Jonah says no. And that struggle unleashes the internal drama of the book. Whether it is the storm overtaking Jonah, whether it is the, the, the gigantic fish taking him down to the deep parts of the sea, whether it is Jonah waking up on the shore and declaring simply, okay, I'm going to go preach to the Ninevites, but don't you dare do anything but destroy them. It all lays bare the struggle that Jonah's in with God. And the struggle is uniquely defined by this, this insight. Jonah cannot get God to do what he wants God to do. You see, beginning in verse uh, 10 of chapter 3. Listen, Jonah preaches, the Ninevites change. And here's what the text says. We just read it a few moments ago. When God saw what they had, how they had changed, how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened and then we turn the page and we see Jonah's posture in this place, in, in this, in this uh, context. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Underline the word theme. That, our, that, that our, our place of struggling with God usually is shaped by our limited perspective. It seemed very wrong. And so he became angry. The Hebrew word beneath the word angry it's better described as a bush exploding into a flame. It's saying that Jonah is, 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 is on fire with anger. He's hot. He's angry. And why is he angry? Because he wanted the Ninevites destroyed. And he could not get God to do what he wanted God to do. And so, here's the question that you and I need to grapple with. What does it look like for me to struggle with God? And what you, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's what I need to do. Let's go to that place where we can't get God to do what we want God to do in our lives. That, that prayer that we've desperately been praying that God won't answer. That healing we've desperately been seeking that we can't find. Come on now. That deliverance that we want for that child or that grandchild that just will not come. And I suspect that therein you will find your struggle with God, trying to get God to do what God will not do. For some of us, uh, when we think about our struggle with God, it is, it is a hidden anger with God that you won't do it. For others, it's a sinking despair. For others, it is a cynicism that sets in. But all of those are just different expressions of how we're struggling with God. Now, the whole chapter 4 makes it clear that God welcomes our struggle. If you look at the literary analysis of the text, you'll find that Jonah speaks in three verses and God speaks in three verses. It is as though the narrator is trying to say that there's this back and forth, this back and forth, that to be in an authentic relationship with God, he creates this back and forth, this struggle, because that's how authentic faith matures and grows in your life and in my life. As a matter of fact, I say struggle is indispensable to the life of a growing believer. And then the book ends with a question for which there is no given answer as to suggest that the dialogue and the struggle between God and Jonah, between you and God, between me and God, continues from one level to the next level, and God creates space for it so we can grow. So here's the question. 
How do I engage in a struggle with God since he welcomes it that makes the struggle worth it, that yields growth and development to my faith? You see, here's, here's the insight here I want you to get. Come on now. Either we can engage in our struggle with God and watch our faith become an informed faith, or we can deny our struggle and pretend as though we, we have no struggle with God and watch the denial of the struggle deform our faith. Which one do you choose? Well, let me suggest how to engage in a way that makes the struggle worth it. Number one, you've got to acknowledge your struggle. We have to acknowledge that we're struggling. That's what Jonah does in verse 4. He is on fire with anger. And he, in his own way, kind of lets God have it. And God creates space for it. Come on, practice with me. Just say this out loud with me. Come on. I'm struggling with God. Come on, say it. I'm struggling with God. Say it. Another way to simply say it is this. I'm having a Jonah moment. As a matter of fact, it's not that you're having a Jonah moment. Probably the more accurate thing to say, I'm having a Jonah season. That I'm in a season of struggle. And either you're in a season of struggle right now, or just keep living, keep living, keep living. You will be in a season of struggle. When you wake up in that struggle, you've got to acknowledge it. God, I'm struggling with you right now. God, I'm struggling with you right now. The second thing we have to do is that we have to decide to stay engaged in the struggle with God. It is a decision that you and I have to make to stay engaged. Shout, stay engaged. Yes. Notice the real change that takes place in Jonah has nothing to do with really his heart as it relates to the Ninevites. In chapter one, Jonah hates the Ninevites. In chapter four, Jonah hates the Ninevites. The real growth and change that takes place in Jonah between chapter 1 and chapter 4 is in his perspective about whether to engage God or not in this active struggle. Notice what Jonah does, how he responds in chapter 1 verse 3 uh, when God says, I want you to go, go, go create an opportunity for redemption for the Ninevites. Here's what the, here's what the verse says. Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He's disengaging. He's disengaging as far away from God as he could get. He's disengaging. He's disengaging. I want to flee the land of God. I, want to, I don't want to hear Torah or biblical reading. I don't want to worship. I don't want to see it. I want to disengage. Don't talk to me. I want to get away. Disengage. I know a little something about disengaging with God when God doesn't do what, I, what you desperately want God to do, what you've desperately prayed for God to do. You've heard my story often about how my grandaunt and along with my granduncle prayed me into a turnaround experience. I ultimately graduated from high school, went to Grandma State University, had a great first year. The first semester of my second year, I called home to tell my grandaunt that I had just won the presidency of the of the, of the NAACP college chapter. I couldn't reach her. Find out that she was in the hospital and a few days later, she had died. Like Jonah, I was set ablaze with anger. Why didn't you heal her? Why didn't you rescue her? And I disengaged from God. I, I stopped going to classes. I ran so far in the opposite direction. Come on now. I, I, I ran into campus politics and, and, and just began to 
just skipped class for most of the semester, engaging in politics. And I didn't go to church. I didn't want to hear any singing about God has smiled on me because it felt like he had smiled on me. I didn't want to hear anybody read a text that says, yea, though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Why do they have to be valleys of the shadow of death in the way? Didn't want to hear that. Come on now. I didn't want to talk to God. I didn't want God talking to me. And I just plunged myself into campus politics. Some of you are listening to me. You're running from God. You've disengaged. You're running deep into the deep spaces of immorality. Or you're running straight down the road, accumulating as much power as you can so that you'll never be in a position where, where, where you don't seemingly have control over life or you've become so callous and so mean. Come on now. And so difficult. And it's all because you've disengaged. And you even feel like listening to me was an accident. But I want to tell you what an accident is providence. It's God's reaching for you. But notice how if chapter 1, verse 3, we see Jonah disengage. Chapter 4, verse 2, we see Jonah do the opposite. This is the growth in Jonah. Listen, listen how it starts off. It says, he prayed to the Lord. Rather than he got up and ran in the opposite direction, it says he prayed, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He's hot. He's angry. He's on fire with anger. And so you might surmise that he's yelling and he's screaming at, at God. And this is probably the clean, cleaned up version that says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew all about you. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. I knew that about you, God. Screaming and yelling at God. And God creates space. Oh, yeah. I lean in here and listen to this point. A rich and reliable faith is produced through your and my struggle with God. As a matter of fact, I want to suggest to you the only way for you to have a rich and reliable faith is it comes through struggle with God, wrestling with God, tussling with God. Another day I... Some years ago, I was trying to remember what my grandaunt used to tell me about making butter. Whenever she'd talk about making butter on the farm that she grew up in, her eyes would crystal and would be filled with joy. I was thinking about how faith in so many ways, as when it goes from what I want to call uh, under-informed to well-informed faith, uh, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like the, the struggle that produces butter. Have you ever noticed you can't go to a fruit tree and find butter to pick. You can pick an apple. <laughs> you can pick a banana. But you can't get butter from there. Have you noticed you can't go into the fields and find butter and pick butter like you do peas and greens and watermelon or okra. But you can't find butter there. Butter does not grow as butter in the natural context. Butter is a byproduct of a struggle. I was trying to remember how, in fact, the struggle worked, and I called my spiritual uh, god sister, uh, Lula Edwards, uh, some years ago. She lives in Atlanta. I said, how did y'all make butter? Because she grew up on a farm in Mississippi. She said, wait a moment, let me call my sister Mary, who still lives on the farm. So we got Mary on the phone, and we're on the phone three ways, a three-way call, asking, how did you guys make butter? She says, oh, I remember. 
She talked about how they started milking the cow. They put the bucket there and, and work with the, the others and milk the cow. And she said, you take the bucket and you put it over in the corner. And she said, you got to watch it. She said, if you fool around, let the milk sour. It's not usable, but you have to catch the milk as it starts the process of souring. Oh, my God. And then when it starts the process of souring, you put it in this, this container, this, this apparatus. And you take something that looks like a broom handle with a, with a flat thing on the end of it. And, 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 and the milk is poured into the apparatus. And you take it and you begin. And Mary, uh, 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 Lula took over then. And she says, oh, yeah, I, I, I know what happened from there. And she said, I would have to do that. And she called it churning. Somebody shout churning. And she said, I have to do it for 30, 40, 45 minutes. But she described that as she was churning, come on now, that some yellow clots would begin to happen in the milk. And, and, and the more the clots would, would appear, suddenly they would begin to connect with one another. And then there would be this, this beautiful yellow film that, would, that would, would settle on top of the milk. And she said we would scrape the film off. And her and her sister at the same time, almost in a moment of just pure joy, shouted about how great that butter would be. But it would be unlike anything they had tasted or experienced. And I heard there the same joy that I would hear my grand aunt when she would describe the same process. And I think about that's how faith is. We first come to Jesus. Come on now, it's an under-informed faith. We come because we hear that he forgives our sin. He does. We come because we hear that he's a God of grace that gives us multiple chances to start over again. He does. We come because we hear that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask and imagine. He is. And we see that happen. And in our early days of walking with God, come on now, we see miracles everywhere. Our relationships are restored. Our sickness is healed. The dream job materializes. But then one day we wake up forgetting that Jesus has declared in this life, you will have tribulations, but be of great joy. I have overcome. We forget the end this life and we wake up in the midst of the unexplainable. Relationship has fallen apart. Come on, disease has tracked us down. We've lost the dream job. And we look for God and it looks like we cannot find him. And that's when the butter of our faith begins to sour. Wow. But that's when we have to start the churning process. You know, here I was hiding away in my dorm, hanging out in the union rather than going to church. And one day God sneaked up on me and dropped the memory in my cerebral cortex. And I remembered Almost it felt like happenstance, but I remembered that my grand aunt had two prayers for me. One prayer was that I would know Jesus the way she knew him and I'd be faithful. The other prayer is that I would excel in education. And I, it, it became clear to me. How could I be so angry about her death? which is tied to how much I loved her. How could I love her so much and yet, come on now, not, not live out the two things that she had prayed for the most. And so I had to re-engage school and I had, re, I had to re-engage God. Yeah. But when I re-engaged him, I re-engaged him churning, y'all. 
You know, here's what it looks like to re-engage God. I re-engage him the way Jonah re-engaged him with anger and frustration. And when you're churning through your, through your faith, moving from under-informed faith to more well-informed faith. Come on now. The rich, reliable kind of faith. The butt of faith. You, you, here's how the churning looks. You cry a little bit and you worship some. Come on. You, 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 you pray a little bit and you read some scripture. Come on now. And you churn and churn and churn. Come on. You cry a little bit more and you talk to some friends. You say, I need you to pray for me because I'm struggling with God right now. Come on now, you go to church and they sing worship. You just stand there. You can't sing, but you at least show up. You're churning, churning, churning. And before it's all over, you look around at your faith and you'll notice some yellow. Come on now, clumps begin to happen in the milk of your faith. And suddenly, y'all, come on now, here's what's happening. Under-informed faith becomes informed faith as your faith breaks away from the conditions that you usually impose on God and you learn how to believe God without conditions and your trust disconnects from what God does and reconnects to who God is and you learn to trust God not because he just answered a prayer but because he's demonstrated that his character is trustworthy y'all come on now and 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 your faith begins to mature as it is informed come on now by all that he's done from you in the yesterday's past where you have discovered his character and you trust him. And before you know it, you start talking different. You start sounding different. You know why? Because you reach a place where God no longer has to prove to you that he loves you. You reach a place in your wall where God no longer has to, uh, where, where, where God no longer has to earn your repeated trust in him. You reach a place in your, in your walk with God where, where, where you don't have to have God to demonstrate to you in a thousand and one different ways that he's eternally for you and not against you. That you just reach a place where you, you know that that is a fact even though you're dealing with with some, un- some things you can't understand. Before you know it, you'll start sounding like Job. <laughs> lost his kids, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, and yet he stood up one day and says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And what Job simply meant was this. It feels like God is attacking me, but there's something in me that knows God so well that calls me to trust him, even though I don't understand. What's going on? Wow. Before you know it, you start sounding like Paul who declared, for I reckon that the suffering of this present. This is the person who's, 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 li- who's, who's sitting in a prison cell watching this five years in and you're innocent. This is the person who's just walked out of a doctor's office with a bad report. Life is getting short. This is the person who's walking out of a courtroom and the verdict went against you. And yet you're sounding like Paul. For I reckon that the suffering of this present world, this is the person who just left a meeting. And it looks like injustice will set the agenda for the rest of the year. And yet you said, I reckon that the suffering of this present world is not uh, this present moment is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. I will trust God even if I don't understand what's going on now. I trust him with the outcome. Yeah. That's a faith that becomes an informed faith. A rich and reliable faith that takes you through the good and through the bad. That is a faith that makes the struggle worth it. So 
So I've got to acknowledge I'm in a Jonah season. I've got to decide to engage and stay engaged. Do the churning work. And then thirdly, I've got to be honest about my instinct to control God. No matter how good I am, how good you are. Each of us have an instinct to control God. God is, is aware of the fact that if, we get, if, we, if he gives us the slightest moment, we will seek to commandeer his power and use it for our own interests. This is what's going on with Jonah. You see, some scholars believe that we know that the, the, the city of Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. And that the Assyrians are the ones who conquered northern Israel with enormous violence and brutality. And we know that Jonah is from northern Israel. We suspect that maybe this is occurring after his people and his family and his, his portion of the nation has been destroyed. And so he feels rightfully, uh, rightful in his anger. And here's what he wants. He wants to exact vengeance or he wants to exact in his mind justice. And so he wants to commandeer the power of God to do through God what he can't do for himself. And this is why he wants God to wipe him out. Trying to commandeer the power of God, trying to control God. And yet God tells you and he tells me he's sovereign. He will not be controlled. There are four ways as we read through the book of Jonah that we see our own strategies when it comes to trying to control God. Number one, we try to control God without disobedience. Jonah says, well, look, I'm the prophet he's called. If I don't do it, it will not get done, maybe. Secondly, we try to control God with our obedience. Come on now. Notice what it says in verse 5. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter he sat under it as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Here's how Jonah reasoned. I've already preached. I've already declared the word of God. I've already said that within 40 days. I don't care what you just said to me, God. I've already declared that within 40 days. Come on now. 40 days, the city will be destroyed by you. And you've got to be as good as your word. And so he figured in his obedience, he's trapped God into doing what God has already decided he's not going to do. He seems like some of our theologians and some of our preachers today who would declare that if you just speak the word of God towards whatever interest you have, that God has to, come on, has to fulfill it because, because, because he has to fulfill his word. That's misinformed theology, my friend. Jonah had misinformed theology. God's word will accomplish that for which it has been sent only when it's connected to God's purpose. But when you disconnect God's word from his purpose for your own interest, come on, you're the only one deceiving yourself. God would never put himself in your hands like that. Wow. He said he thought through his obedience he could control God, but no. Thirdly, he thought he could control God with his pouting. Notice the message version of verse 5. It says, but Jonah just left. He went out the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. How many of us are trying to control God through our pouting, through our sulking? You know, that may work with your, your parents. It might work with your siblings. It might work with your lover. But then work with God. I remember my pastor, Bishop Donald Green, he said early in his faith walk with, with the Lord, he was trying to get God to do something that God did not do to answer prayer that God had not chosen to answer. And he was sulking. 
He said he walked into the house and his late wife, Sister Betty, said to him, Donald, God is not moved by your self-pity. The only thing that moved God is your faith and your faithfulness. And then finally, some of us try to simply control God through quitting. If I can't have it my way, God, forget it. Notice Jonah in verse 3, and this is a repeated theme throughout verse chapter 4. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And then again in verse 8b, he prayed to die. I'm better off dead. And yet, God will never put himself under your control and under my control because his vantage point is an eternal vantage point and it is up to us to trust that God knows what he's doing. All right, so number one, if I'm going to engage, I need to be honest and acknowledge I'm in a Jonah season. I'm struggling with God. Number two, I've got to decide to engage and not disengage. Do the work of churning that I might develop some butter faith, rich, reliable faith. Number three, I've got to monitor my instinct to try to control God. And number four, I just got to let go and trust him, y'all. Somebody shout, let go and trust him. Yes, let go and trust him. Listen, God gave me a gift some years later. As is often the case with us, I had worked through and I was back fully functioning in my faith. I was even preaching. But there was still some residue of anger and disappointment because God didn't let me keep my grand out a little longer. And then he drops once more again. Just a little revelation in my cerebral cortex. And I could hear the whisper. What was your mother's greatest two prayers for you? Me. Oh, that I would excel in education and I would come to know you in the way that she knew you. Number two, he says, what was your mother's greatest two prayers for herself? And I thought a moment and he answered, the first she was been told that she was barren, so her number one prayer, tied to her number one dream, come on now, was to become a mother of a child of her own. And God said, I gave her you. Wow. What was her second prayer tied to her greatest uh, earthly dream? It was not a prayer that she would live forever. You remember the prayer, don't you, Herman? You remember? And I remembered that in the, especially in the last five years of her life, when, when evidently she knew that she was dealing with cancer long before I knew she was dealing with cancer, what did you hear her pray every Tuesday night in prayer meeting before she finished her prayer? Oh, I then remembered that she would pray, Lord, let me live long enough, come on now, long enough to see my boy standing on his own two feet. He said, did, did I not answer that prayer? Were you not a second year student in college? You didn't even come home, but a couple of times over the summer, she knew that you were standing secure in my grace, standing now on your own two feet. And it was in that moment that I reached in, come on now, and delivered her from a body that was caving into cancer and brought her to be with me, which was the promise I had already made to her. So do you have a right to be angry with me? 
Guess what he asked Jonah? Do you really have a right to be angry with me? <laughs> oh, my God. Whew. I think about Rick Warren in this moment. That was a gift. God gave me insight. But there are some things that God will not give you an answer to on this side of life. I think about Kay, Kay Warren. When she writes about the suicide of her son, Matthew, she said that she refused to allow what she did not understand about God, why God didn't answer that particular prayer and deliver her boy. She refused to allow what she did not understand about God to undermine what she knew about God, that she could look back over 30 years and see how God took her and her husband in a living room of about five or ten people and, 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 and through God's faithfulness blew them up into the, one of the largest churches in the world where they were transforming miracles after miracles after miracles. She knew too much about God to deny him. And so she said, I'm going to stand on what I knew about God. And not allow what I don't know about him to undermine it. But I have to deal with what I don't understand. So she said she created a box and called it God's mystery. And then she wrote her questions down. And everything she didn't understand, she put in that mystery box. And then she drew her inspiration from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. That reads, all that I know now, shout now, yes, now is partial and incomplete. But then, shout then, yes, I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And she said, I'm going to put these questions in the box. And in the now, I'm going to stand on what I know about God. And I'm going to wait till I see him face to face in the then to get the answers to the unanswerable question here. Oh, my God. Can I just encourage somebody right now? Come on, create a file on your phone, a file on your computer, and call it a then file. See, that's what mature, informed, rich, come on, a reliable faith does. It, 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 it helps us to navigate the space between now and then. Come on. And, and everything you don't understand about God, just, just drop it in the then file, y'all. Come on now. And then stand on what you know about God now. And, 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 and ultimately, come on, you'll end up in the same place where I, at some point we're going to slip from time to eternity. From now to then. You know, then. Come on now. When, 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 when I pull off mortality and put on immortality, then, come on, when I'm standing face to face with my Lord and Savior, then when I'm standing toe to toe with pure unconditional love and I see those who have run ahead of me, come on now, in that place called then, then, come on now, when that which is incomplete is swallowed up, by that which is complete, I'll think about my then file. Come on. But then in the words of C.S. Lewis, because I will know, even as I'm known, I'll think about it. And then I'll, I'll go, aha, I see, Lord. I understand. Because I will know, even as I'm known. And then the next thing will come for me will simply be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being faithful to your eternal plan and your eternal purpose and not allowing me and my insecurity to disrupt what you were doing in life. Come on now. Somebody shout, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for demonstrating, for being faithful. 
Thank you. Thank you. Amen. And amen. Oh, it's in that moment I will declare yet again, the struggle was worth it. Somebody say it with me. The struggle is worth it. Yes. Say it again. The struggle is worth it. I'll leave you with this reflection question. Where in my life am I struggling with God? You might want to re-listen to this message and begin to work through that struggle. You can come out with butter faith and declare, oh yeah, the struggle is worth it. Amen.